Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is Paul Sexton, the author of a new book called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Steve. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. Your book is beautiful. My first question, you know, tell us about your vision of this book and how it came to be, because it, it is quite unique. Well, it's nice of you to say that. You know, I mean, that, that's the first challenge, I guess, because obviously there are a lot of Prince books that come out, you know, on a regular basis, even now, five years after his death. So coming up with something a little bit different was was the first challenge. This actually grew out of a documentary that I made for the BBC, a radio documentary called Prince and Me, which we aired, I put it together and it aired on the first anniversary of his death. It was a two hour program, whereas a lot of the documentaries that I've made for the BBC would be one hour where you're cramming stuff in, you know, and there's never enough time. With a two-hour show, you've got a little bit more of a chance to dive a little more deeply. And the other slightly unusual thing, I suppose, was that rather than fill the program with celebrity fans, the idea really was to fill it with people that I was able to reach who are not particularly household names, unless you're a Prince fan, of which there are millions, of course, but people that really did know him and worked with him over a long period of time. And that then became uh, another challenge in terms of winning their trust. You know, as I think any any journalist will say, especially the, the further up you go and the higher, the, the bigger the name, you're going to have to do put some work in, often for years in advance. You know, to win those people over because they are naturally and very understandably wary of people like me, and all the more so in the case of someone like Prince, because you know, it, it's, since some of these. Uh, Great, highly talented musicians and uh, engineers and everybody else are not necessarily as well known. I'm sure they often have the feeling that we only care about them because they happen to, to know the guy in question, you know. So um, there's that to overcome. Fortunately, uh, you know, having been a journalist all my life and, and done, done it for so long, there were one or two cases where I had interviewed these people before. So that had, you know, at least opened the door, I think, to the possibility of them being involved. And really from that point on, having spent a, a long time getting those interviews and not a huge number. I mean, there are probably half a dozen core interviews in the book from very important people to it. And then, uh, you know, quite a few others who contributed to a lesser extent. We put the program together. I presented and produced it for, uh, for the BBC. Uh, it seemed to go down well. And as I keep saying... You never know who's listening mm. because uh, it turned out that uh, a guy from Welbeck Publishing heard the show and I think uh, started thinking about it as a, a possible book. So we started to discuss it. We agreed on on the plan and we augmented it with you know a lot of new updated material, of course. So that's really what happened. It, it, it's a, a book that started out as a radio show. That's awesome. Well, you know, you mentioned two of the foundational reasons that I think this book is so good and why it's different from others. So uh, let's take them, not necessarily in order, but, you know, I, I always think, and I worked for a company that has a sister company based in Minneapolis when Prince first came through. So I always think of him more of an American artist, but I think over the years yeah. he, he became more of an international artist, really. But you write that Prince's early releases were, quote, inexplicably specialist. And it was a while before the UK audiences truly saw Prince. So why was that? And what was the first Prince release that really took hold over there? 
Well, if you go back to the beginning of his career, and uh, I, I think I identified him, you know, so much, not just because of loving the music, but, uh, you know, I started writing about music almost exactly the same time that he signed his first record deal with Warner Brothers in 1977. Um, and it's very hard to imagine this now, but, you know, it, the UK was pretty backward when it came to media. And, you know, we've been very, I mean, listen, you know, we were decades after you and getting color television for a start, you know, and we've, we've been kind of slow. And in those days, if you're talking about that era of his very early releases there just weren't the outlets for it really you know we ha- we only had three national television networks bbc one bbc two and itv and in terms of other media you know ways that you might find out about him pretty much the same sort of deal on the radio you had national bbc radio one and radio two the commercial radio network was only really sort of expanding at that point and as far as tv shows i mean we had top of the pops which was our famous chart show on television but very much a chart show. So then you have that chicken and egg thing where if the record is not a hit, then it doesn't get on that show. And that's one of the reasons that it couldn't be a hit. We had the Old Grey Whistle Test, which was our famous, fairly, let's say, more rock-oriented television institution by that time. But they, they weren't quite ready for someone like Prince yet at that point. So I think they had a lot to do with it. Those early singles and albums, they had a following. And I remember distinctly hearing them and being very aware of them, but they were not chart items. You know, if you look at his discography or his chart record in the early years in the UK, it's almost non-existent. It's probably even like his first dozen or 15 singles that came out in the States. Only one of them made the UK charts at all. Uh, And that was, I want to be your lover. And even that didn't make the top 40, you know, so we're pretty slow and the same, same for the early albums. And strange as it is to think of this now, because he became so huge it's years really before you get to the point where he's having automatic hits and the the one that really opened the door for that was 1999 but only even then as a reissue you know Warners were trying very hard with him by the early 80s I think they even released that single twice within the space of a few months and uh, it didn't really take off in a big way on either occasion so it's not until you're into almost the sort of the you know the Purple Rain era that he begins to be really on the same sort of scale in the UK and internationally as he as he was in the States. Is it fair to say then with your talk about the media, was it was it mostly word of mouth? I mean, what was his fan base like? It's a good question. I mean, uh, yes, by that time, he certainly had good coverage in, the, I suppose you'd still say the specialist media in the UK. My starting point was one of the weekly uh, music papers uh, in the UK called Record Mirror, which was very much sort of pop and soul oriented title and I so came through writing for them when I was still at school so I was kind of like the, the soul boy you know who wrote a lot of that sort of stuff and we talked about the disco era of course as well and this is at the point where dance music was not fashionable in the way that it became much later on so that's how I got a lot of my early work I think because I was interested in this stuff you know and uh, would volunteer to to write about it and then you had titles like um, Blues and Soul magazine and Black Echoes and so on who would have been giving Prince a lot of coverage at that point so he had that base and he did come over to start playing in, in the UK at uh, smaller shows. But yeah, beyond that, yes, I guess a lot of word of mouth. It's so interesting because clearly there are a lot of Prince fans in the UK and yeah. nothing bears that out more than the 21 Nights residency in 2007. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that because that, that's amazing. Yeah, 
I mean, you look back and think it's just an astounding achievement. I hope we sort of get into the detail of that a little bit in the book through the voices of a couple of people who were very closely involved. And they both talk about their early meetings with Prince when he came over to discuss the possibility of playing 21 nights at the O2 Arena. Which was a huge venue, right? Yeah, absolutely massive. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in in total. And was pretty sceptical about it and said, you know, eventually... He said, okay, you know, we'll do it your way, but on, on the understanding that it's quite possible that the last few of those dates just won't sell and you're probably going to end up doing it in some club or something like the, you know, like the Jazz Cafe in, in London or one of those sort of venues. So there was definitely some scepticism about it, but of course he was right. You know, it was, I mean, the, the level of interest was astonishing. It's very interesting from a media point of view too, because clearly he was living here at that time. You know, he was residing in the UK. One of the, the reasons that it was so successful, that run of shows, was that he knew exactly how to work the media through his publicist in the UK. The tabloid press would be getting a daily feed, really, of, of stories about him, just keeping him in the in the public eye and reminding people about these shows that were coming up. And then, you know, even right the way, once he started doing them, that was the case as well. He was so smart at managing the media and knowing what to do. And I love the idea that you may remember that he had an album coming out at that time called 3121, even down to the detail of pitching the ticket price at 31 pounds, 21 pence. Right. It's just clever stuff. I remember, I think it was an earlier album, but didn't he give one away in the London newspaper? Yeah, he did. That's right. This is the other thing from that period. Pretty controversial. But then, you know, this is somebody who was never shy of taking a stand about certain things, as, as of course, he did earlier on in the in the symbol era, you know, the, the war, you have to call it that, with, uh, with his record company. He really was the first to introduce the idea that live music was going to be the future, that that would become the commodity, that the album, the recording would not. We all got a little bit more used to that that idea later on, but at the time it was incredibly controversial, you know, and, and quite unpopular with a lot of people. And of course, it played into what was happening in terms of the evolution of the of the digital world of music. And it did take a long time for us all to collectively get past that point. You know, I think there was a generation of people who, partly for that reason, and also just the uncontrolled levels of piracy, basically, that were going on, that music was suddenly for free. But at least in Prince's case, he had a strong argument to back it up, which was that, you know, the recorded music was to be kind of bundled in with the live performance. Brave thinking, I must say. Revolutionary, really. And kind of happenstance nowadays. But to that end, and I'm sure it kept his name in the papers too, but, uh, you know, this 21-day run... He also mm. plays late night after shows, and then he plays fan shows. Yeah. Did you see any other shows? Actually, you know, to my great uh, regret, I, I have to tell you that I didn't, and I, I, I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I certainly saw him in some unusual situations. It's amazing to think back on the, the fact that he was doing this, and it's not even unique to the London visit. Just the length of time that he spent on stage, I mean, on, on a day where he was playing live, it's not an exaggeration to say that he would have been performing in total for maybe six hours in a, in a day, because the other part, which is less well known, of course, is that he would be doing the sound check for the show. You know, most people will get in and out and do that as, as quickly as they can. His sound checks were like other people's shows in, in, in some cases, you know, so that's quite a big deal in, in itself in, in the afternoon, I guess, of the of the day. And he's doing the show itself for three hours, and then he's doing probably the same again at one of these after shows. Well, the London dates themselves, of course, are pretty legendary, but the the after shows even more so. And I do have some stories in the book from people who um, played them, you know, and actually were part of that. He had some special guests, but even even more compelling are some of those set lists, which are crazy. You call them a fantasy yeah. jukebox, and he was not afraid to pluck a song from any era, any band, and just play it live. 
No, that's right. It's a reflection of his amazingly eclectic taste and his awareness of all kinds of music. And this is something that goes right the way back to his childhood. There are stories in the book from some of the people involved. You know, he'd be listening as a kid to, yes, a lot of funk and soul and R&B music, but then he'd be listening to Santana, Jimi Hendrix and Blood, Sweat and Tears and bands like that, you know, as he begins to learn more about music. And it sort of mirrors itself in, in the set list, a lot of which I'm sure was very spontaneous. I mean, this is one of the things about him having huge expectations of his band. They had to know a lot of stuff, not just this immense catalogue of his own that, that, they, that they had built up by that time, you know, anything and everything. But then you see, you look at set lists from various shows of his where there's just crazy stuff that props up, probably only a little reference. There's one set list of his from the 90s where he suddenly goes into a few calls from how much is that doggy in the window i mean it is just insane <laughs> he only had one outdoor festival is that correct and and his um set list from there was outrageous yeah so the, the, the only festival that he ever did in the uk was the hop farm festival which is you know was well known and well respected and had had some big names at it but not really one of the nothing on the scale of a of a glastonbury and I have a little chapter in the book about how he came to do that uh, festival, which was in uh, 2011, from a friend of mine. At a certain point, after many months of hopeful <laughs> inquiries, he suddenly became available, wanted to play in the UK, and they got him ahead of Glastonbury and all of the others. So suddenly here he was going to be making his way over to uh, to the Hop Farm Festival in Kent, uh, which for anybody that knows the UK, is, is was quite near the town of Tunbridge Wells. Not exactly a rock and roll capital. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But at that point, the tickets for that uh, festival had already gone on sale quite some time before, and it had gone on sale as a two-day event. So they actually created an entire new day for him, a third day of the festival, which, of course, requires a great deal of extra work, not just logistics of a third day, but building a bill around him as well. And then much nearer to the date itself, in came the um, contractual request, you know, the rider, as we would call it. And, And some of these requests did not reach the festival organizers until literally the day before when they got word that he would be requiring a purple throne uh, as part of his backstage uh, setup. And Jill tells it hilariously and says, you know, where am I going to get a purple throne at sort of less than 24 hours notice in Kent? You know, she remembered that um, a friend of hers uh, ran a club, a lap dancing club, let's be frank, not too far away from, from where the festival was taking place. She calls the guy and says, um, can you help me out? And he says, yeah, I can, but it won't, it won't be purple. It'll be red. So they made the arrangements and they got it there in time and they got it backstage and all was well. <laughs> I wonder if you knew where it came from. I'm sure you did. Uh, yeah, she says to me that uh, she she didn't like to think about what had been happening. <laughs> so yeah, they just managed to keep that secret. Well, through all of this, Prince's work ethic is legendary. And it's fair to say that you either kept up or you were gone. And yeah. But if you did keep up, he was very loyal. And there's a number mm-hmm. of people in the story, both musicians and producers, and they play an integral part. A lot of them are women. Susan Rogers, who wrote the wonderful forward in your book. That's a beautiful piece of work there. Yeah. And she's one. Susanna Melvin and Wendy and Lisa are others. Tell us about these women and what they meant to Prince. Well, yes, and you're right. There are some very important people, and, and a lot of them were women. I mean, to take Susan first, she's somebody that I had the chance to, to interview on a number of occasions, actually, over the years, and she is just wonderful, almost more than anybody else, and certainly in, in, the, in the period of Prince's career that a lot of people would think of as, as the heyday. She was there as the engineer on those records between 1983 and 1987, and she's there not just in the studio all the time, all the hours that he required. She certainly doesn't like to be called his confidant. But she was really his right-hand woman, you know, in, in all of those situations and helping to, to create these 
fantastic records. You know, she's very passionate about the fact that they work together and very proud of it. But she's also able to sort of take a slightly longer view about uh, about Prince and, and his um, plus points and minus points. She's perfectly happy to talk about him. You know, he's incredibly gracious in our interviews. And then I said to her, you know, after the, the having completed the, the book itself, I said, I wonder if you would consider writing the foreword. And she was absolutely delighted to do it. And I'm glad you enjoyed it because I think it's, it's different from what she contributes to the book itself in that it's, um, I mean, in a way, it's even more personal. She sets the scene of what happened on the night after Prince died, which obviously is a very extremely sad scenario. But she just talks about the fact that she and quite a few of the people who knew him best gathered together at a location in, in Minneapolis just to swap stories about him, you know, not for broadcast or for filming or anything really. Just uh, because, of course, at that point, they're all in shock. You know, I mean, nobody, it's just a terrible shock to, to everybody that he that he went when he did. Susanna Melboyne, also absolutely invaluable to, to the book and, and someone that, again, I, I had met before because she was a member of the band The Family, who were actually the first band signed to Paisley Park uh, in the mid-80s. They only made one album. So they came and went quite quickly, but they did the original version of Nothing Compares to You, which, of course, we all came to know extremely well few years later by Sinead O'Connor. Their version, and I will say that it is my my favourite. It's, it's the version I prefer. It's quite different to Sinead's interpretation. So she's around from that period and she gets to be very close to Prince, both on a professional and personal basis. And they were engaged to be married at one point. But she had been listening to him for years before that. And Susanna is the sister of Wendy Melbourne, who went on to be the Wendy of Wendy and Lisa, you know, who were obviously... A, members of the revolution, and then made some wonderful records of their own. Susanna is around later as, as a later member of the revolution and, and goes on to co-write with Prince. But she does talk about those early days when she and her sister were listening to radio, nighttime radio in, uh, I think, in New Hampshire somewhere. And uh, as often would happen, come the evening, radio sessions would drift across from, from wherever. And I think it was a, a, an R&B station in Boston that they heard playing. And this must have been around 1978 because it was his then current single, I Want to Be Your Lover. And they just completely flipped out and said, who is this fantastic female singer? <laughs> Even then, there's that sort of slight androgyny to his sound, I suppose. You know, you mentioned the introduction, and it is full of sad stories, but I want to remark how it sets up the rest of the story so beautifully because of that. It's a, it's a weird way to open it in a way. Mm. It's also a way where Susan Rogers is able to point out a side of Prince that we don't ever see, which is the purple penguin story. <laughs> is it possible you can tell that quickly? That's one of those, how long have you got kind of thing. Because, yeah. And I've been saying to people, actually, it's not so much, yes, it's not so much a shaggy dog story as a shaggy penguin story. Mm. But it does demonstrate life on the road with Prince. And the fact that, I mean, people have been saying to me, what did I find out about him? And some of this I knew, but, you know, you, I think you do get a feeling or a sense of the fact that he was quite a fun-loving person. For all of his demands that he, he's put on himself and other people and the incredibly high standards that he set, there was also a great sense of fun. As Susan Rogers actually describes it quite often as a sort of an adolescent sense of humour, actually, which is, sort of applies to this, but clearly they were egging each other on. Let me see, the short version, shorter version of the story would be that this is when they were on the um, on the road in the tour bus. They had this a kind of tradition. Somebody had given, I must have been a fan, who had uh, given them this pretty much life-size stuffed penguin. So this thing gets on the bus and goes on the road with them. <laughs> what develops is this kind of competition between them all in really to see who can stay awake the longest. And this is in itself a reflection of the fact that he just kept the most ridiculous hours and, and apparently never slept. You know, the contest that grew up was, you know, who could stay awake the longest. And every time somebody was caught out and found to be sleeping on the bus, 
they would be photographed with this penguin next to them as evidence, you know, like a Polaroid photograph of the fact that they are no longer in this game because they've fallen asleep. So this goes on for a while. And eventually the only two people left are Prince and Susan Rogers. You know, it appears that he can't be beaten, but there is a point where she finds she manages to stay awake as long as he does. And they're sitting on the bus one day and she actually looks over and he, and he has his eyes closed. So she gets the camera, <laughs> she gets the penguin <laughs> and she puts it in position and she's just raising the camera up to her face to take the picture. And he opens one eye and says, what do you think you're going to do with that? <laughs> so, and, and that's a big part of his story, but a bigger part, you mentioned it earlier is Paisley park. And yeah. so he builds this in Chantenhausen and it becomes, you know, a home, a fortress, yeah. a recording studio, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing place. Now you can do the tours and virtual tours yes. even. And, but you mentioned a story about the publicist and I do remember that one because the architecture was so interesting and this was a glass room. Yeah, that's right. I mean, very futuristic looking building and fascinating, interesting sort of psychologically that he wanted to build this, uh, not exactly a fortress, but certainly, you know, a a home from home. Uh, And it's also significant, I think, that he does that close to home. I mean, this is in, as you say, in Chanhassen in in Minnesota, literally down the road from Minneapolis, a city with which he had something of a love-hate relationship. You know, I mean, in his early days as as an aspiring musician, I think like a lot of people, he can't wait to get out of there. But actually, you know, he retained his links to to Minneapolis for his entire life, much as he did live in Los Angeles for for some time. And as we've said, in London, he builds this headquarters, really, you know, which he can live in, he can record in. It had a twelve and a half thousand square foot soundstage in it. So, you know, they can rehearse in it. They can they can pretty much do everything. At a certain point, Alan Edwards, who I mentioned earlier, is invited over there to well, I don't think it was ever explained to him exactly what would happen, but clearly this, you know, he would make the quite reasonable assumption that this was with a view to them working together. And he goes over there, he is met at the airport, he gets driven to the Paisley Park, they sit him down and fairly quickly they start playing him the upcoming album, which at that time in the early 90s was Diamonds and Pearls. And all the time he's sitting there, he's sort of aware that he's probably being observed from somewhere. It's like something out of a spy movie or something this. So he's kind of making the right moves and, you know, sort of nodding when he thinks he should nod. And obviously it's a great record, so that helps a lot. And then he kind of waits for something to happen and it doesn't really, you know, he's he's not even offered a drink or anything like that. He's just basically sat there to listen to this album and then it finishes. And um, before too long, somebody says to him, it's time to go now, you know, to go get the car to, to go away. And basically he gets out of there and goes home and flies back to the, to the UK without ever having met Prince at all. And he thinks quite sure what all that was about. Anyway, two or three days later, sure enough, he gets the uh, the call inviting him to be Prince's UK publicist. So clearly the whole thing was very much very stage managed and uh, he was indeed being observed. And he obviously reacted in, in the right way and did, all, did the right things. That was his first non-meeting with Prince. I'm sure it was a test for sure, because that seems yeah. to pop up a lot. We mentioned earlier the sound checks and things like that. You know, you definitely had to pass the test. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. 
Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Paul Sexton. He is the author of a new book on Prince called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. So your book is filled with all these wonderful personal stories from a lot of people close to Prince. That in itself is, is quite an accomplishment because, you know, it's almost like the mafia in Omerta, you know, that you just don't really talk about Prince if you're close no. to him. And there's so many great stories, but as a visual person, I have to say your book is also filled with some remarkable pictures and, and some memorabilia. And I know you say you put the call out through the BBC radio show for some interviews. How did you solicit this visual material? In a, in a way, that's an easy answer, Steve, because I can deflect all of the credit for that to, to other people. You know, it's it, once we committed to doing the book, you know, you have the luxury of working with a picture editor and uh, which we, I you know, was very involved in the early conversations a lot, uh, along these lines. But you need somebody who knows clearly who knows what they're doing. And in, in this case, it was somebody who, you know, who really knew where to look for this stuff. So, you know, he had a very long list and then knew to go to the right places, which in several cases, as you'll see from the credits at the very back, actually, um, would be auction houses. Now, you know, that's where a lot of this material ends up. And I think that's true of all major artists. I mean, you often, you'll see, you know, Eric Clapton's guitar from 30 years ago suddenly becoming, you know, available and, and going into a new auction. Uh, so these things would pass in and out of the hands of, of private collectors. And that is true of quite a lot of the, uh, you know, the stage costumes and the guitars and so on that we um, we have photographs of in in the book. I do like the fact that we have a, I think, a nice mixture of artifacts, you know, from Prince's life, even down to his Bible, you know, from when he became a Seventh Day Adventist. Letters that he wrote to fellow musicians or staff and and so on. Then we have things like, you know, early reel-to-reel sets, um, set lists, you know, a whole whole bunch of of material. So um, that's been fun for me because, you know, it's a little bit like when you write a a newspaper or a magazine article, which I've been doing, you know, for many decades. You never fully know the impression that it might make on people because you're not in control of the visuals, basically. You know, and there have been times where that's turned out great and there have been other times where it hasn't, you know, and now a lot of stuff that I would write would only ever be online, of course, but, you know, there are still times when it would be for a print newspaper. And I've written for all of the, the UK nationals over, over the years. But sometimes you would sort of in the in the newspaper days, and especially the broadsheet newspaper days, we still call them the broadsheets, even though they're not anymore. 
but you would sort of open it you know, through your fingers a little bit because you weren't entirely sure of what photo they'd chosen or the, the headline that they'd used. Readers tend to think that the journalist does all of that, and usually we don't. So you're at the mercy of good editors and sub-editors, sometimes with good results and sometimes not so much. But I'm really very delighted with the way that they've, um, they've made the book look, you know, and, and the cover too. I think the, the, the cover image uh, I do like uh, is a, a later picture of Prince, but not one that I think people will necessarily have seen all that much. And you know, the other thing I quite like about the cover is that it doesn't have any purple on it. <laughs> oh, they avoid it. No, not at all. No, but I just love the fact that they've avoided the visual cliche. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is an astounding presentation because, you know, there's stuff like that chain mask that he wore. Yes. Yes. Boots, which I don't even think would fit my daughter with that have the the logo on it. They're tiny. And and then, you know, just the photographs of live and in the studio, you could probably track the decade he's in mm. due to the hairstyles and, and particularly the clothes. I mean, you know, style was incredibly important to him. And yeah. and you write in there that that he had a whole, you know, cast of characters that created that stuff for him. Yeah, that's right. As with any other major artist, it takes a while before that persona, that stage and recording persona fully develops. You know, I mean, that's true if you look at whether it's Rod Stewart or Elton John or, or Stones. I mean, you know, you look back to the to the Stones early days with the lead singer called Mike Jagger. You know, you can't quite believe that now, but that's what he was called to start with, you know. So that's certainly true with Prince. And yes, when you see the, the costumes and the, you know, all the, the clothes laid out in the pages of the book, you know, they do look pretty outrageous, don't they? And uh, he was not scared of being, you know, of taking chances from a fashion point of view. And yeah, that chainmail cap, where, of course, we should point out that the chainmail's down the front. Right. <laughs> the front of his face is outrageous. And then some of the guitars as well, you know, look, look pretty cool too, don't they? So, yes, I think there was certainly a team of people that were, um, you know, helping him to make those decisions. And he's a man of a thousand hairstyles too, isn't he? And, Definitely. Uh, the whole look is uh, ever-changing. Yeah. I, I think he bears sole responsibility, though, for the dirty mind look with the black fuzzy underwear and the fishnet stockings. I'm glad that he, he kind of got a little bit outside of that. But um, yeah, I think so. that was perfectly representative of that record, which is a brilliant record. You mentioned this just a moment ago. And one of the things I was struck by is just how beautiful Prince's handwriting is. I mean, it's amazing, mm. like these notes that he wrote to people. And then you look at them and sometimes they're a little hard to read, but they're, they're just yeah. gorgeous. His handwriting is un unbelievable. It is, yeah, and there's you know you you see him also communicating in different ways with different people. There's a memo in the book from which I think is written on hotel uh, note paper actually, just a, from a hotel that he, I guess he was probably on tour in in Portugal at the time. And that is you know that's the opposite of what you just described because it's a very it's a block writing probably written in a, <laughs> in a real hurry to somebody on the Paisley Park staff telling them in no uncertain terms that unauthorized photographs are to be taken down from the website immediately. That's the boss. <laughs> you know, telling the telling the staff what he thinks. But you go from that to one or two other letters, and one I'm sure you're thinking of, which is a, really one of my favourite things about the whole book, is the letter that he wrote to Suzanne Vega, the singer-songwriter. I mean, she was pretty new, and breaking through with the song Luca, which um, it's not a, insignificant that that's a song about a, a you know a, a child in a in a, a broken relationship, which you know was very much true of Prince himself as he, as he grew up, as he was sort of you know his parents split and he was being moved from pillar to post in many different addresses in, in Minneapolis. And it's just a one-page letter, beautifully written, handwritten, in which he just says, Dearest Suzanne, I want to thank you for, for Luca, which is the most you know, beautiful song I've heard in, in years. And he actually says, and I don't think they knew each other at all at that point. Thank God for you, is, is what he says. Suzanne did not publicize that at the time. 
most people only became aware of it when Prince died because she remembered that she'd had this letter for all those, you know, by that time, what is that, 20, 25 years later or something. By the time she talks about it, it you know, it, it's kind of fading and, and yellowing. So you're right, it is a little hard to read, but it's very sweet. And I think my favourite thing about that is it, 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 it's one of the things that underlines way above and beyond all of the hoopla and the, and the showbiz and the, you know, the image and the mystique around him. First and foremost, Prince was a music fan. And he wanted to communicate that to a fellow musician. We didn't even know about it at the time, you know, and uh, I think that's, that's an important part of his makeup. And he reached out to Johnny Mitchell too, and he was a huge fan of hers as well. Mm. Right? Yeah, that's right. She went on to say that, that he was her favorite among all the people that she knew she'd influenced. And he went on to record a version, and it was on a, a Joni a tribute album, a version of A Case of You. And she actually did show up at one of his shows once, as, as you know, from one of the captions that's in, in the book. She joined the revolution on stage at a certain point. So this is the pulling power of this guy. I, I can't really think of any other major artist who, who reached across all of these genres and styles. You wouldn't think of Joni Mitchell as being anything like Prince musically. But because he had this amazingly open-minded attitude to music, there is an early interview with him in the days when he was still doing interviews, where somebody asks him, what he wants to achieve with his music. And his whole raison d'etre almost is bringing people together and cutting across all of these genres and divides that we all, media included, you know, put on things. And just to bring people together, you know, whatever their creed, color, sexuality, whatever it may be, you know, you have to say, I think he achieved that more than just about anybody. That's perfect. And I, I can't even add to that. I mean, I agree on so many levels about how he grew as an artist and then you know, grew this circle, but mm. you know, the things like you talk about giving away the music and, you know, live performances now are pretty much the way they make money. Some of those things with the slave written on the cheek, but they're a little shocking mm. at times, but, but he believed in what he did and, and carried it all the way through. Yes, that's right. And also it's a reflection of how prolific it was. You know, that, that whole dispute with Warner Brothers and the whole slave era, as it became really, started because he simply wanted to be releasing records on a more regular basis than they did. It's something I've come across in, in other artists who, if they had their own way, would probably be releasing two or three albums a year, you know, and that's just not the way that major labels are set up. It's certainly then, I mean, it's changed a little bit now and you do have slightly more of a kind of guerrilla marketing approach to, to music, I suppose, in the digital era. And people are able to put out records quickly and often almost as a surprise now. You know, that does happen. They don't have to, well, it depends on the deal they've got, of course. But, you know, in many cases, they're not necessarily obliged to be putting out a full album. You know, so you'll see individual tracks appearing from people, which is, I think, is great. It's the way it, the way it should be. But it's still important that there's a place for the, the regular album, I think. People still want to have that as a focus. I, I certainly do. You know, call me old-fashioned, but I like the idea of a set of songs. And I think he did too. It's just that he wanted to put them out very regularly. That's where that dispute started, really and ended up with him regarding himself as, a, as a, a slave. It's one of those things where you can see both sides of that argument, because he certainly wasn't shy in using or making the most of the, uh, you know, the marketing muscle that, that Warner's had that helped to make him a huge star in the first place. And you could argue that when it suited him, he, he decided that that wasn't the way he wanted to work anymore. So it's a double-edged sword, but still a very brave and career-risking thing to do, really. Definitely. Let me wrap it up with this. Prince has quite the uh, recorded archive, and there are pictures of that, and it's unbelievable. And as much music mm. as he put out, there's probably five times, maybe more, in that yeah. archive. Now that the family has control of that, I believe, what are your thoughts? I know there's one album that just came out, I believe. Yeah. But what is the status of Prince's output now? 
Well, you're right. The, I mean, it's. I mean, I don't think anyone's put a put a number on it. Well, I, you know, you hear you hear stories about eight thousand hours of unreleased material and so on. If you look at the, the sort of posthumous discography, there's been a there's been quite a flow of, of material. Some of it in the form of um, the expanded versions of the classic albums, you know, Sign of the Times and, and others. And then in the case, as you say, of the recent release of the Welcome to America album, that's particularly fascinating, I think, because it, it was intended to be an album that would have been released in that form pretty much 10 years ago. That was his plan. So I think it's very strong because it's not a question of the estate pulling together a record from different sources. This is something that actually wasn't, you know, it's the way that it was intended to to sound. So it's very coherent and, and a powerful statement, by the way, on the world of social media that he saw sort of becoming ever more powerful. Uh, so it's quite an indictment, actually, on the, the way that he saw the world then and and actually the way that it's gone on to be since his death. There will be many more, of course, you know, and you're quite right. If you look at the fact that his output when he was alive was 39 albums, and that's pretty remarkable, you know, over the course of his his lifetime, I suppose. Uh, what are we talking about? You know, rather less than 40 year, 35 year recording career or something. All you can really do is hope that um, the powers that be manage that in the right way. I think there are those who would say that, you know, what what he released in the last few years of his life was sometimes a question of quantity over quality. I don't think he ever made a bad record, but there are some that are, you know, less essential than others, as in the case of many artists. So this, of course, is going to happen more and more, you know, (laughs) in the next 10, 20 years. I think we're we're going to start to find this happening, sadly, an awful lot, you know, where people's output, it becomes almost as productive in, 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 in death as it was in life. You just want the standard to remain as high as it possibly can, really. Exactly. And, you know, Prince is an icon. His music is iconic. This has been Paul Sexton. His book is Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. And as I said before, it's really interesting because it's not necessarily a biography, but there's a lot of deep information in there. But it also contrasts with a visual kind of picture. It's really a great book, and I congratulate you, and thank you for being on. Thank you, Steve. It's been great talking to you. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at fantasy points. Fantasypoints.com code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 